You're listening to the First Baptist Rockdale Sunday Sermons Podcast. First Baptist Rockdale is a church dedicated to making disciples who make disciples. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Uh, We're walking through the book of Esther. Esther is a a book that doesn't ever mention God by name. It's the lone book in the Bible that holds that distinction. Um, you know, uh, the Bible is, by its nature, a religious book, right? It's a book that speaks about how God is working in the world around us uh, to accomplish his grand purposes through history. And then we get a book kind of smack dab in the middle of our Bible, and God is entirely absent by name. And that's not an accident that God's name isn't mentioned, that the, the word God or the name the Lord isn't mentioned in the book of Esther. It's a purposeful decision To show that even when God's uh, name is absence, his presence is felt. And that's true in our lives, right? Even when when God uh, isn't near to us necessarily and and we feel the absence of God, it's in those moments that God is ever-present, still working in our lives and on our behalf. And so we come to the book of Esther, a book where God is uh, conspicuously absent by name but present in providence, and today we're going to deal directly with the issue of providence. Providence um, was was a huge Christian concept at the founding of our country. In fact, if you go back and read documents written by our early um, American leaders, you'll see the word providence um, used as a synonym for God. Right? Providence allowed us um, to this opportunity. And the idea is that God organized situations and in, 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 uh, the, the world around us to accomplish his ends. Providence is a comforting fact that God has an end in mind and that that end in mind is going to be met no matter what. And since that end is coming, God is always working both the good and the bad things in the world together to accomplish his goal. That means there's a direction for human history. Sometimes we, we get caught into thinking that this, this uh, is all random, that it's void, that there's no point. You know, the secularists, the scientists might say, hey, there's, uh, this was a random cause that brought us here, you know, some sort of, um, you know, two nothings collided to make all of this something. And then out of the ooze of all of that nothing came some fish with legs. And then eventually that became us, right? You can walk it through. And obviously I'm way simplifying the theory of evolution. I'm okay with that for for our purposes today, right? But the idea is that it's just kind of chaos that led us to this point here, and chaos is the end. Uh, You know, one of my my dear friends who's not a believer, you know, he he takes comfort in knowing that out of all of this chaos, one day um, when his body is no more, um, the, the same material that made up his body, the cells, the molecules, the atoms that made him up, um, uh, were, were once upon a time stardust. That's how he, he finds value in the world, to know that once upon a time uh, in, in a land galaxy far, far away, uh, there was a star that exploded, and, and part of that made him, and one day he'll go back into that. And that's kind of how he draws meaning for the world today. It, it's how he avoids uh, nihilism, the idea that there's no hope or purpose for anything in this world. But there is a purpose for this life because God is drawing human history to a point. He, is, he was drawing it to a point all through the Old Testament to lead us to Jesus Christ. And then from Jesus Christ, he's been drawing it to the second coming of Christ, which is the moment that we as a church should be longing for. You should have a deep-seated longing 
for that arrival of that. And you need to recognize that no matter how good or bad your life situation is, God can use that situation providentially to bring about his ultimate purposes uh, in, in, in the history of humanity. We're going to read more about that today in Esther. We're going to be in Esther chapter 2 and 3 today. So if you have your Bible, we're going to do a good bit of reading today. So I hope you brought your listening ears today. Okay, here we go. Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19. This is what uh, the word of the Lord says. It says, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. And Esther had not made her kindred or her people uh, known as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. And in, in those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Therese, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry, and they sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair had been investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. We're going to stop there. Is there something interesting that goes on here? Mordecai uh, is the cousin of Esther, who is now the queen. She was selected queen um, in the previous verses of this chapter uh, to replace a queen who did not obey. And she is a Jewish a woman who's now ascended to the leadership position, the highest point a woman could re, re, uh, achieve in, in the nation of Persia, which was the most powerful empire on the planet at that time. And Esther's sitting um, as the queen um, of Persia, and Mordecai, who is her cousin, uh, has some sort of official job. He has a reason to be at the king's gate. By the way, when we think of the king's gate, we have a, a picture of a gate, right? I, uh, that's the way I think of it. If I just said he's sitting at the gate, we've got a big gate right here, and he's just kind of sitting beside the gate, right? But the king's gate for the citadel of Susa was actually a gigantic room. It was a massive room where comings and goings happened, and I'm sure there was a gate on both ends of it, um, but the, the gate itself was a gigantic area, probably not too dissimilar than the size of this room that we're sitting in now. So the king's gate was a destination, it was a place, and the people inside of that room were officials for the king. They were people who worked on behalf of the king um, for, for whatever purposes the king needed them to do. So Mordecai had a somewhat official job inside of the Persian Empire, and this shouldn't surprise us, right? Because if we read the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel found that same position in the Babylonian and Persian Empire. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, were all found... Uh, positions inside of the Babylonian government at the time. So unlike uh, what we might think, like, oh, these people aren't from here, so they, they shouldn't get a chance in uh, ruling, the Persian Empire and the Babylonian Empire said, hey, if you're not from here, we'll take your best and brightest, and we'll use their skills and gifts to further what we want for our, for our purposes. And it would help, right, to have a Jewish person on your staff, because when you had to deal with an issue in the, in the Jewish people, you had this guy to go and kind of be the bridge between the king of Persia and whatever issue they were having, uh, maybe in Jerusalem or in other areas of the world where Jews might have had a population. This is true of all the empires, all the little kingdoms um, that Babylon and Persia conquered together. They would take the best and the brightest, bring them into the government. So Mordecai has a somewhat official government job. He's sitting at the king's gate, and he hears of a plot to assassinate the king. 
And immediately he goes and he tells his, his, his cousin, uh, and his cousin goes and tells the king, and the king investigates, and those guys get executed. And it seems like a really tight-knit story. Like, oh, of course, if, if you heard, and I, I pray this is true, by the way, it's election season, some of us may not do this, right? But if you heard of a, of a credible plot to assassinate the President of the United States, I would hope that you too would go and report this to the proper authorities, uh, and then they would investigate, and whatever needed to happen to those people who were plotting that would, would, would be prosecuted, right? We saw that in Michigan, right? We got some guys who want to kidnap the mayor or the governor of Michigan uh, for whatever ends they have in their mind, right? Hopefully someone reports, there's an investigation, there's consequences that will go out there. But for Mordecai, this is a, a, a test for his obedience, it's a test for his obedience because his cousin has been kidnapped by the king. His cousin has been forced into a year's worth of beauty treatments and whatever. His cousin was forced to spend a night with the king, possibly against her will, definitely violating who she was as a Jewish woman. His cousin was forced to have all these things. And now the person who made all of that stuff happen has a chance to die. And if Mordecai had stayed silent in that moment, the story could have been different, right? Uh, king Ahasuerus, the, the, the wicked king of Persia, uh, who was married to Mordecai's cousin and who had defiled his cousin, who had violated her autonomy, he could have been gone. From the story, he would have been wiped out by these two guys, Big Tha and whatever the other guy's name is, right? Could have had those two guys and they could have taken him out and then and that story would be different. Esther would no longer have to fear uh, being called in to this tyrant of a king who, who is power hungry, right? Her life would be better, uh, most likely, and Mordecai would be able to do away with the man who has probably caused him the most personal harm in his life, right? And, and that's a tough situation to be in. It's a test of Mordecai's faith and whether or not he will do what's right, even if it harms him in that moment, and he does, right? He reports it to the authorities, so the authorities can do the proper investigation to lead to the saving of that king. The Bible tells us, in, in as far as it is possible, and as far as it's possible for you, do what is right to other people. Do good to other people. This is a biblical com command of us. As far as it's possible for you, do good to other people. Not just to good people, not just to okay people, to all people do good to them, right? And that, this is a tough, tough pill to swallow that we should do right even for the wicked. Even for those people who have harmed us and hurt us and caused us pain and suffering. We should seek their good. We should pray for their good. Even the people who have caused us personal harm, we should be seeking they're good. I know that it's difficult. Right? Honestly, I do. I've had people who have hurt me, who have wronged me, who I have deep, like, wounds in my soul from. But as far as it's possible for us, we should seek the good of all, even those who are wicked. So where we can do what is right, we do the right thing. And we do the right thing with no expectation that it's going to come back to us. You know, I've helped people before who I knew would not appreciate the help that they're going to get. Because it's like the 19th time that I've done it. 
and you go and you answer the call and you go and you do the service that needs to be done and you help them in that moment of crisis and you know when you walk away that boomerang is never coming back to me. Like if I was to call that person up in a similar crisis in my life, they would laugh and hang up the phone and move on with their day. But as far as it's possible for us, we do right for all, even those who have harmed us, even for the wicked. And we have no expectation of what's going to work out. But in that day and age, there was an expectation that if you save the king's life, there would be a reward. Right? And I, I, honestly, like if I reported some massive plot to, to kill the President of the United States, I would expect some sort of war, maybe, maybe a rose garden ceremony, right? Me and, and, and the dawn just hanging out together, right? Me, got some roses around us. It'd be a good moment. I'd be taking pictures on, you know, on your favorite news channel, whatever channel you like, right? You get to see me up there, the man who saved the President's life, Matt Higginbotham. Feel good about myself. Right, maybe it'd be a fun little time to be there. Right? And this could be an expectation, a logical expectation. If you save someone's life, they'll be thankful for it. Right? They'll be thankful for it. We would be thankful if someone saved our lives. Obviously, the king of Persia would feel the same, but not so much because what we expect to happen, which is a, a promotion, a recognition, a ceremony, all Mordecai gets is he gets his name written in a book that nobody is ever going to read. He has written down in the Chronicles of the Kings of Persia. And if you don't believe me that that book is never going to be read, we have a book of Chronicles in our Bible. Two of them, actually, First and Second Chronicles. If I was to tell you a book of the Bible that you do not read, and this is a book that has been around, preserved, and printed billions of times, it's Chronicles. You get in the book of Chronicles, you start reading the book of Chronicles, and you're like, whoa, that is not that interesting. So-and-so reigned for so many years, they were wicked, like their granddaddy, or they were good, like their granddaddy. They had kids, kids fought about something, next king. All right, it's a tough book to read, and that's the divinely inspired book of Chronicles, not the Chronicles of the Kings of Persia. Right? Nobody's ever going to read that book. The king isn't just going to get up one day and be like, hey, let's read from that book. That sounds like something I want to do for entertainment. It is just something written down formality-wise. That's all Mordecai got, his name written in a book that nobody would ever be expected to read, just recorded for some posterity's sake that possibly someone somewhere with some interest in history might stumble across. By the way, I admire those of you who are really into history. That's an interesting uh, concept for me. Uh, our church is like almost 150 years old. I don't, I don't brag on the history of our church. We're, we're, we're approaching 150 years old. Just a couple years, we'll be there. How many years are we looking at, Doc, till we get there? Doc says four years, we'll be there. Um, so in about four years, we're going to be 150 years old. That is a long time to be a church. And there were people who studiously and, 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 and very dedicatedly saved our church history. We have boxes of it. Uh, and they're in, like, scrapbook, kind of picture book style stuff. And it, is, it can be interesting to go back and read. It's like, oh, this is what they did back in 1928. Uh, in this church. Right? That can be an interesting concept. But the truth is, rarely, I've been here for five years, rarely has anyone come and asked to go through uh, the, the, the history boxes of our church. I have a consolidated version, by the way, that just has the highlights as well, which, which I use from time to time when I need to know something from back in the day. But no one is rarely, no, not no one, there's been one time that I know of that I've had to go back into the boxes and dig through the stacks to find something 
it was for the founding of the Hispanic church here in town, the Premier Iglesia uh, that's up on Ackerman or Maine. Those streets run together in my mind as you go out of here. But um, just, just up the road a little bit from us, we founded that church, and they didn't have any of their historical documents. They did not studiously keep their historical documents. And so they needed to, to look through ours to find out kind of when they were founded and how that worked out. And so whatever we had, I gave to the, the lady who was trying to work out some of their history stuff. That's the only time I've looked through it, right? But, but there's something about getting your name written down. But that's all Mordecai got. He got his name written in a book that no one was going to read. But immediately after that, we're introduced to someone else who's getting all of the rewards that we'd expect Mordecai to get. Chapter 3, verse 1. It says, after these things, we don't know how long after, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set him on... Uh, and set his throne above all the other officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the kings had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai uh, Mordecai's word would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai didn't bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he dis disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, that is the Jews, Haman sought to destroy all of the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Okay, so we're introduced to this guy Haman. When Mordecai should be getting advanced for his loyalty to the king, Haman shows up and he's getting advanced. Haman makes a, a pretty aggressive entrance and he's introduced as Haman and he is an Ag Agagite. Now we don't know much about the Agagites because we're people uh, who live in the, the 2020s and we're not that interested in the history. But here's the story of Agag. When King Saul, the first king, uh, King Saul, by the way, direct relation to Mordecai, not an accident for the way this story works out, by the way. When King Saul, the first king of Israel, was made king, he was told to go and destroy the people of Amalek. He was told to utterly, completely destroy the people of Amalek. And so he went and he utterly and completely destroyed the people of Amalek except for one person and their best animals. So he kept their best animals to bring back home as spoils of the war, which God specifically said not to do. And he kept the king of Amalek because, I don't know, he wanted someone to show off in front of. And so he brought this king home, and this king was a guy named Agag. And Agag was the leader of the Amalekites um, at this time when God had utterly commanded them to be destroyed. By the way, they were told to be destroyed because if you go further back into the Bible, they're the first enemies of Israel. When Israel leaves um, the land of Egypt to come back into their promised land, Amalek is the first country to attack them and destroy them. And at that moment, God says, y'all will be utterly and completely destroyed. That was going to be fulfilled under Saul. Saul refused to do it. He refused to kill uh, the king Agag. And it's my, uh, my favorite. It's one of my favorite Old Testament stories. Because Samuel, the prophet, comes walking in. He's like, hey, Saul, why didn't you do what we told you to do? He's like, hey, I did it. I killed them all. They're all dead. He's like, well, what, what is this animals I hear out there in the distance? I'm hearing sheep and cattle. I'm hearing all these animals in the distance. And then Saul's like, well, you know, I killed all the people. But, you know, there were some pretty good animals. I brought them back. I'm going to sacrifice those 
to God. Samuel's not impressed. By the way, Samuel's often not impressed in the Bible. He's not impressed with Saul's disobedience in this. And he's like, what is, what is this I hear about the king? Huh? Where, where, where's he at? And Saul's like, well, I brought him with me, right? Because, I, I don't know. I brought him with me because he's the king and I didn't know what to do with him. And Samuel, it's, honestly, the Bible is great with words. It makes sense. It's a book. Um, but, but it's great with words. Samuel goes up to Agag. He looks at Saul. He's like, you were supposed to kill this guy. It's a paraphrase here, right? You're supposed to kill this guy. And, and Saul's like, hmm? And then the Bible says, literally, Samuel took his sword and hacked him to pieces. I love it, by the way. That's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Hacked him to pieces. Just chopped him up right there in front of Samuel. By the way, the, the Bible, if made into a motion picture, could not make PG-13. Couldn't do it, right? You can't hack people to pieces, uh, pieces even now and do PG-13. It's got to get an R rating. But he kills Agag, right, the, the last remaining descendant of Amalek. But we're introduced to this uh, Haman years later. It's like 600 years later, by the way, roughly. 600 years after the death of the final uh, Amalekite, Agag. And we have this guy who's identified as an Agagite. What it's basically saying is what, what Haman's character was, was the same character of Agag, the same character of the people of Amalek. He was an enemy of the Jewish people. Like, that's who he was. He was an enemy of Israel. It doesn't matter where he's from. He could have been a Babylonian. He could have been a Persian. He could have been a Mede. He could have been a guy from Assyria. It didn't matter where it was from. His character was he was an Agagite. Agag didn't have any children. He was the last remaining descendant of Amalek. When Samuel hacked him to pieces, love it still, when he hacked him into pieces right in front of Saul, completing what Saul failed to do, right, when he did that, that was the end of the Amalekites, but it wasn't the end of the enemies of Israel. We see that now. There are still enemies of Israel out there, right? Uh, we have the Nazis back in the 40s and 30s. We have the Nazis again today. How crazy is that? Or that we have people who, who have, who have anti-Semitic beliefs, and they draw back on the leadership of a 1930s failed leader in Germany as inspiration. How insane is that? But, but there are still Amalekites. There are still Agagites in the world. Haman, wherever he was from, didn't matter because his character was he was an enemy of Israel. And while Mordecai did the right thing, over and over and over again was doing the right thing, saving the king, even though his heart may not have wanted to be, be in it, even though he did the right thing, this guy, the enemy of his people, gets elevated to power. And immediately what this guy has done is he's given a power and authority by the king uh, of Persia. And when he has that power, everyone's told to bow to him and Mordecai, knowing this person, knowing the character of this person, an Agag guy, someone who hates his people, he says, I will not bow to that guy. Yeah, the king says I'm supposed to, I'm not going to do it. And his disobedience was not that major. Because if it was, if, if, if when, ha when Haman walked through the king's gate, he was like, boo, you stink! He would not have needed a bunch of people to come and say, hey, there's a guy who's not bowing down. Right? Haman had no idea that, that Mordecai was disobeying the king's command. He had no clue. But the people around uh, Mordecai didn't like Mordecai disobeying. And so they tattled, right? Tattletales. They went and tattled to, to, to daddy, Haman. They said, hey, is this guy allowed to do this? Because he's a Jew and he's doing this. And as soon as they said he's a Jew, Haman's like, I know what I need to do. And the Bible says it seemed what distasteful 
uh, for him to, or he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He didn't just want to kill Mordecai because this gave an opportunity to, to fulfill what his deepest heart desire was, which is the utter destruction of Israel. And so he says, I'm not going to kill this guy. I'm going to kill them all. And what we see here is after Mordecai does the right thing earlier in the story, they find out that doing right doesn't always uh, take us where we think it should. Right? Doing the right thing doesn't lead us in the direction where we want to be. It doesn't take us where we expect to be. Sometimes when we do the right thing, we end up in the wrong situations because terrible people do terrible things. If you've ever been there before and you've done the right thing, maybe you've been the lone person doing the right thing in a situation and somehow because you did the right thing, you got punished. I'll tell you my favorite story about being in college. I, I was uh, at Houston Baptist University uh, on, on scholarships. I did a really good job in school. I think I graduated with like a 3-4, just enough to lose my 3-5 scholarship I needed on my last semester, okay? Um, but but, but I, I had a good GPA, generally a fine student, but I was married after my freshman year to an exceptional student. Uh, Danielle Higginbotham graduated third in her high school class and had no issues with studying. Just a, a tremendously a studious person, takes school very, very seriously. Compared to me, very, 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 very seriously. She taught me how to study. You're, I'm a better pastor for you because I married that woman. Honestly, uh, the, the, the ability for me to go into God's word, to compare it to other commentaries, to come out with a message is a, a blessing um, from my wife and the teachers who worked with me in college and in seminary. I, I was not ready for this sort of study. But I, I had many classes with my wife, and there was only one class where I beat my wife at the end of the semester. And that class was music appreciation. <laughs> Seems like a weird college class, I understand. Houston Baptist University, we took music appreciation with Dr. Fies, F-I-E-S-E. And uh, basically, we had to listen to music, and I had to sit back and be like, I appreciate that. I can appreciate that. Or sometimes, I don't really appreciate that, but I'm trying. Right? And so we, there was all sorts of field trips. We had to go to the opera. I found out I like opera. I didn't know, right? This was a beautiful thing that I learned there, right? We had to go to the opera. We had to go to the symphony. We had to go all these, not, not a big fan of the symphony or the ballet, um, but opera I liked. Um, and so we had to listen to all different types of music from all different uh, eras of music, starting at chance, going to, to modern day music. And there was stuff, there was a test. I don't know how you test whether or not people appreciate music properly. Dr. Fees had a way to do that. And it was our first test in that class and he gave very clear instructions. The instructions were this, uh, answer every question that you know. If you don't know the answer, do not guess, um, because you'll get partial credit for leaving it blank, but you'll get full incorrect credit for leaving it if you, if you answer it incorrectly. So if you're like, if you don't know, don't answer it, okay? You're in a class of 24 people, he gives very clear directions. None of us follow the directions, because we have been taught Everything in school says, eliminate a couple of options, guess, guess, guess. And so that's what we did. We all guessed, except for one person, Danielle Higginbotham. Danielle Higginbotham's a rule follower. Love that about you, baby. Thank you. She followed the rules. She skipped the questions she didn't know. She never proffered a guess on something she didn't know. The professor, when he comes back with the test, very disappointed in us, by the way. Uh, he did not appreciate our appreciation test. Uh, looks over the test and says, it looks like you guys didn't follow the instructions, so I'm changing how I grade the test. He, he collapsed to the will of the people, 
and changed how he graded the test. And my wife, who left, I don't know how many questions blank she left over the course of that test, had a 0% chance of getting any of the questions she left blank because the teacher told her to leave them blank. And so she went to him after the class because her grade was substantially lower than mine, with all my guessing. She goes to the professor, and he's like, I don't even know what to do. The grade stands as fit. And so she got a B in music appreciation. She can only kind of appreciate music, but me, a, an A music appreciation guy. right? And what happened is she did the right thing under all circumstances. The professor did the wrong thing, collapsing to the will of us idiots who will not listen to his instructions and just guess because everything in our hearts tell us to guess, right? And so he collapsed to us, he punished her, and that's exactly what happened. Mordecai did the right thing over and over and over again, and then this other guy who does nothing right, the whole story is Haman being a wicked loser. Really, it is. He does nothing right, he gets promoted and promoted and promoted, and sometimes you do the right things and you don't get what you expect, and wicked people get what you feel you should have. That is the truth of the story. It's unfortunate, it stinks, and we live in this broken world where wicked people are rewarded and righteous people are not. It doesn't work in our system, but God is still working through it. From there, we get the story from verses 7 through 15. I'm going to summarize this for you. You can go back and read it um, uh, at your leisure. But basically what goes on in verses 7 through 15 is uh, Haman devises his plan for how he's going to destroy the Jews. And so he takes the purr, uh, which is basically just dice, it's a lot, and he casts the lot to see which month is going to be the month for him to kill all of the Jews. And he rolls and rolls and rolls, and eventually it falls to the last month of the year. It would be December for us, but it wasn't December for them because the year started at a different time. None of that matters. But it was 11 months from the day that he was rolling the dice. And so there was basically a full year from the day that he rolled the dice to the day that the uh, execution of the Jews was going to happen. He goes to the king and he sells his plan. He says, hey, king, there are some people who live here and they do not follow your rules. They don't listen to your laws. They do their own thing. And uh, I think it would be better if we just killed them all. And king Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, same guy, by the way, he's not a good guy, doesn't follow good moral principles. So when his lead advisor says, hey, let's go kill a bunch of people, he says, eh, I don't know. And then Haman says, how about I give you, like, let me, let me find the number here real quick. I don't want to lie to you. 10,000 talents of silver. How about I give you 10,000 talents of silver, which is like tons and tons and tons of silver. Basically, he bought the privilege of executing all the Jewish people. He said, I'll give you all of this money if you let this happen. And Ahasuerus had just spent almost all of his money trying to invade Greece unsuccessfully. He's kind of a poor emperor at this time. Some guy says, I'm going to give you basically a year's worth of money all at once. You say, sounds good. Sounds good. And so Haman's plan is it's given. King gives him his ring, says, make whatever rule you want. So Haman issues a proclamation. There's going to come a day on this specific day at this specific time everywhere in Persia, not just in the city I'm in, but in every little town around here. If you find a Jewish family there, you can totally annihilate them. And take their stuff. You can kill them and steal. This is like Purge 1.0, by the way. This is a very specific day when you get to do this activity for this limited set of time against these people. And he sends the, the, the command out and it goes to every single province, 127 provinces across Persia at this time. 
And all of them are given the command that you can kill all of the Jews now. You can kill them all on this day. Not till then, but on this day. And what we see here is that this wicked person, right, this wicked man uh, is being used for God's end. You don't see it now, but, but, but what he's doing in the midst of this is God is using him as a foil for his purposes. Right, that God, you, God can use wicked schemes of wicked people who have nothing good in their hearts, and he uses it for his purposes. The purpose God had here was to save the nation of Israel in the midst of it. God had made that very clear from Genesis chapter 13, or yeah, about 13, I guess, where the covenant with Abram is made, um, all the way to this point in human history. God had said, I will preserve Israel. I'll give you a land. You'll be a blessing to all the world around you. You will have uh, descendants that will outnumber the stars. Uh, more specifically, uh, you'll never be annihilated. Right? You'll always have someone to lead you and to be on the throne for you. And this man says, I'm going to step in and violate that command. And God says, you can try, but what you think you're going to do, I'm going to use for my benefit. And that's tough for us. right? Because if you've ever really gone through the stuff, the deep, dark parts of this world. It's tough for us in that moment to recognize that God can use that, is using that providentially for him. I shared probably before, uh, I was fired once upon a time by a church. Can you imagine that? After y'all appreciated me so much today that there would be a church that would want to fire me. It's just insane to me. Um, I was fired years, years ago. We're looking at 10, 12 years ago now, maybe 15. I don't know. We're at 10. My wife is not nodding. 12. 12. She says 12. Okay. I, I, I was resigned officially from a church uh, because of nothing. No biblical reason. It wasn't like I was sinning, stealing, sexual immorality. Nothing. Just like, we're tired of you. Go away. That's kind of the way it worked. Um, and I'll tell you why that hurt. Right? Professionally, as a guy, like to be like, all of a sudden, like, you're not, you're, your services are no longer needed. Go away. Right? It hurt. Um, but God was using that. It was a church that I wasn't super comfortable with for, for a lot of reasons anyways. God used that situation that seemed very, very dark to bless me, and it took me about a year to find it. But a year after that had happened, I got fired right before Christmas. Great time to get fired, by the way. Resigned. Officially resigned. It's a great time to get resigned because um, all of your Christmas stuff is all over the place. We packed up our house. We had boxes filled with Christmas stuff, and every like our living room boxes had Christmas stuff in it when we unpacked in three months when we got our new house in Kingwood. Right, we had stuff all over the place. So Christmas comes around the next year, and my wife is looking for something, a nativity set or something. We can't find it. No, because our Christmas stuff goes in Christmas boxes, and then uh, it goes up, and then it comes down, and then it goes back up the next year. That's all it does. It just lives in a box, shelf, box, shelf. That's all it does. That, that's the whole life of my Christmas stuff. But this stuff was not where it was supposed to be. She couldn't find it. She was real frustrated. Uh, and then I, it just hit me in that moment, like, how wonderful God has been. That like a year ago, we were scrambling, struggling. We were in a church that didn't fit us well. It was a hard, every day was hard there. Every, some of y'all have had jobs like that, just hard days when you go to work. Every day was hard. The ministry was hard and the environment was tough. It was very emptying for my soul. And then God had supernaturally intervened through wicked actions to put me in a better place, put my family in a better place, to give me a better church, a better environment, a healthier place for me. 
And it wasn't until a year later when I couldn't find that nativity set that I recognized, like, God quickly took something that I thought was just earth-shatteringly bad and made it the best thing that ever happened to me. And it was. I mean, because I got fired, resigned from that church, right? I got, I don't know, six months severance or something like that. Or love, I don't even know how they schedule that because they didn't really fire me. Six months of hush money um, to go away quietly, <laughs> right? So here's six months of money um, to go away. That was the down payment for my house that I got. And King would still own the house. It's still making me money. Uh, in that house, I got put in a church uh, where, where I came broken and then I became whole. Got to finish my seminary, got to be developed in, uh, in preaching, sat underneath a man that I respected and admired, worked with youth and parents that were wonderful, prepared me for this job here that I have today. And I can look back on it, I can see that providence worked that out. A situation that seemed terrible, dark, and hard, God was using those dark, wicked people, uh, uh, back off, those dark times where wickedness was done to me to providentially prepare me for what he had for me in the future. Like, whatever good that I have done at First Baptist Church Rockdale is directly related to that moment in my life. Like, directly tied in. And that's because God is providentially working at all times to accomplish his ends. Through the rough times, God is working to accomplish his ends. If you're in a dark moment right now, if your marriage is in trouble, or your kids are maniacs, or your job... Uh, is a kick in the face, or your finances are a wreck, or you're worried about the consequences of an election that's going to take place inside of three weeks. If all of those things are troubling you and this moment is dark, I want you to know that the author of human history is not absent from this. He's pointing it where he wants it to go. And the direction is his direction. God is providentially working right now to accomplish his ends. So you get to be a part of that. And your suffering, though hard in a moment, if you can gain perspective, and like I said, it can take a year or it can take a decade to look back and to see how God has used the suffering of the world around him to create a path towards where he wants you to be. God does it in individuals' life like he did for me individually. He also does it in the course of human history. We're all playing a part in God's big, grand story. And it's coming true day by day. The wicked people think they win. They think they're accomplishing their goals. But God providentially will not let the wicked win ultimately. He is driving history to his ends and his ends alone. Trust in that, God. Let's pray.